You are listening to the official podcast of Grace Atumwa. Episode 5. I've always disliked Mary's song at Christmas. That's what Pastor Chris first thought when he considered preaching from this passage in 2020. Mary starts out by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord. And Pastor Chris says, Oh boy, another generic song about praising God. But this year he slowed down enough to read Mary's words. Mary's song was not generic at all. With pointed words, Mary surprised Pastor Chris with the true meaning of Christmas, a meaning we all need to hear this year. We will explore this in today's episode based on Luke 1, verses 46 through 55. And now with today's message, here's Pastor Chris Childs. Picture baby Jesus in your mind right now. Just picture it. What do you see? For most of us, for myself, we imagine a white baby Jesus who doesn't shiver in the cold, who grows up in a middle-class life and two-parent family. For most of us, that's what we see. And we struggle to see the Middle Eastern baby Jesus born into a poor Jewish family in a Roman world. But Jesus, he was Jewish. He's a Middle Eastern Jew in a Roman world. The Jews were not the privileged class. They were not the top of the totem pole. They were conquered people. Jesus grew up, was born as a conquered person. Throughout his early and later life, he saw over and over again Jews that might try to rise up against their oppressors and never once succeeded. Most Jews, they didn't have the rights of citizenship legal rights in court. Jesus was the son of a carpenter named Joseph. And there's no mention of Joseph in the scripture after Jesus is 12 years old. But we do see signs. Here's what we do know. That when Jesus dies at the age of 33, his mom is a widow. So sometime between age 12 At age 33, Jesus is at his dad's funeral. Jesus grows up in this world. He's overtaxed. His parents are overtaxed. Everyone he knows, all of his connections, they're overtaxed. They're in poverty. Joseph and Mary, they get engaged in nowhere nazareth the way people talked about nazareth think of the worst city the worst neighborhood you can picture the way people talked about they said things like can anything good come from nazareth but that's where they lived that's where mary and joseph met it's where they were engaged 
And Joseph, he got to this place, he could finally prove that he could earn a living as a carpenter. And so he received the blessing from Mary's family to marry their daughter. But then, with the news of Mary's scandalous pregnancy, Joseph's new carpentry business, we can't imagine would have been in trouble. Can you imagine Jesus' dad just getting started in the trade? And now clients are refusing to do business with him because of the scandal that they heard. And then Mary and Joseph, they received the word just like everyone else, that they are to travel to their ancestral town, their town where their relatives are. The town of Joseph's family is where Joseph and Mary have to go, to Bethlehem. It's a long journey, but they have to go there because the powerful emperor wants a census. He wants to count the people so he knows how, many, how much he can collect in taxes. On the long journey, Mary and Joseph, they have little money for the journey. And on the journey, they get little income. Already struggling financially, now they can't work while they're traveling because they're traveling. And they don't get unemployment payments. This is Jesus' family that he's born in. We're picturing a different kind of baby Jesus. When Jesus then was born in the barn in Bethlehem. And I love it. When I drive around town, I walk around town, I see people, they have their manger set up, they, they, or their barn set up with a little manger in there, the feeding trough and the hay. They have the little baby Jesus there. Mary and Joseph are right there. I love seeing it because that's the story. That's the story of what Christmas is. And I also ask, as we see it, as we look at that barn in Bethlehem, can we see Jesus shivering in the cold as his young first-time parents with no support system try to keep Jesus warm by packing hay into that animal's food trough, into that manger? Can we see Jesus' parents shivering as they're cold because they wrapped the little bit of cloth that they do have around their newborn son. Do we see Mary and Joseph huddling together, recounting the embarrassment to each other, the embarrassment that they felt when they arrived in Bethlehem, seeking lodging in the home of Joseph's relatives and being told that the only room available for Joseph and his pregnant fiance is in the barn with the animals. Do we see Mary and Joseph after the birth, after the census is over, not being able to or choosing not to return to their hometown of Nazareth because there's no longer a life there for them. Instead, they try and make a new life for themselves in Bethlehem. And this goes on for a couple of years because when Jesus is two years old, while still in Bethlehem, Joseph receives word from an angel that King Herod wants Jesus killed. Herod had heard from a group of stargazers, wise men from the east, that a new king had been born, and they had come to worship him. And Herod, he wasn't going to give up his throne so easily. 
he already limited several members of his own family for less. So Herod sent his army to Bethlehem to dispose of every male toddler in the city, in the village, really. And Jesus and Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt as political refugees. Is this the Jesus that we picture as we get ready for Christmas? Jesus, the political refugee. Is this the Jesus we picture? Two-year-old Jesus, three-year-old Jesus, five-year-old Jesus, facing discrimination in Egypt. You know, at least when he was in Jewish country, yeah, they were the oppressed people, but at least they had camaraderie together. But then, fleeing to Egypt, they are the minority. Can you imagine the discrimination he faced? And years later, the family's finally free to return to their home country. And they go back to Nazareth, that town where Mary and Joseph were engaged. Can you imagine the courage it must have taken? And yet you remember Nazareth's reputation. Can anything good come from there? So this is more than just a place that Jesus happened to live in. From this place, Jesus would receive his public identity, Jesus the Nazarene. And everyone knew what that meant. So here's my question. Why would Jesus have grown up like this? These are Jesus's early formative years. This is the Christmas story. While Mary was still pregnant, before they made the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, before the wise men followed the star, before they knew they were going to be in a manger, in a stable, Mary sang this song. Yeah, I rarely hear a Christmas song that says what she says in it. It's not surprising when the Christmas songs I hear aren't written by people in Mary's situation. They aren't in poverty. They aren't oppressed people. The Christmas songs I hear are usually written by white middle-class men who see Christmas through a different lens. I wonder how much that's why I've always skipped over this song. I've skipped this passage. But today, this year, we look at it. I ask that you look at it with fresh eyes with me. It begins in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 47. And this is from the New Revised Standard Translation. Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And to me, I think of this, and I think that's just generic praise. You know what? I've seen plenty of praise songs. Yep, my soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice in God, my Savior. Yep, yep, we're just going to prove praise in God. This is kind of um, standard for a lot of praise songs. I missed some words in it. It goes on. Luke 1, 48 says, this is the next verse, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. There's two words that carried more meaning in these first few verses than I used to realize. The word Savior and the word lowliness. The word Savior 
someone who saves. Savior even carries the idea of saving, rescuing, but also the idea of healing. That sense of Jesus is the one who saves is nice for me as a middle-class white person. And immediately I begin to go into saving us from our sin, right? I personalize it. For her, as a person who knows she's in need of rescue in many arenas of her life, yes, personal salvation from sin is in the picture. Yes, salvation from the guilt of sin is there, from the shame of sin is there, from the power of sin. Yes, that's there too. And also, salvation from this world of injustice is in the picture, especially as she goes on to say, the Lord looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Lowliness, humility, smallness. Mary's looking at her situation in life, the injustice that's been done to her, the injustice that she expects to see the rest of her life, being at the bottom of the totem pole. And she says, God is a savior to people like me. And she keeps going to say, the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. There's two more words here, mighty and holy. The mighty one has done great things for me. This idea that God is powerful enough to do something. In this world where we see injustice, and in 2020, we've seen injustice. In 2020, we've seen people who didn't get a fair shot. Yes, we see it in the big national news stories, right? You know where else we've seen it? We've seen it when schools are trying to make decisions about whether to go online or not go online. And they know that if they go online, they're kids who won't get an education this year. They know that they don't have the support system. They don't have the resources that are set up for them to get what they need. There's an injustice there. There's an injustice that in this land of equal opportunity, some kids don't get a fair shot. And God, in Mary's song, is mighty and powerful and capable of doing something. And then the other part is God is holy, mighty and holy. Holy means separate. God's not caught up in the injustices of our world. God's separate from it. And then Mary goes on to describe that power of God. She describes the strength of his arm. And she use, she doesn't use these two words. But she describes things that fit these two words. And, and we have to understand these two words to understand what she says after this. Justice and mercy. And there's a difference. There's a big difference between justice and mercy. Let me explain it with the image of a river. Imagine you're standing by a river. As you're standing there, you hear someone screaming for help. 
and you realize someone is in the river they're drowning and and you reach out with a pole and you pull them up to shore and you save them and you rescue them and you bring them up on the shore that's mercy you had mercy on that person in the river you, you help them out you help get them free and then you hear more screaming there's someone else that's in the river they're coming downstream and you throw out a life preserver and you pull them in and then you hear more screaming you see two or three more people and they're in the river too and you same thing you save them you rescue them that's mercy you do something specific to help a specific person justice is a little different Justice is when you get to the place that you say, what is going on upstream that all these people are stuck in this river, not able to swim? What is going on up there? Justice is when you start asking questions about the system. Justice is when we say, yes, we've got to help this kid because this kid is struggling. So that's mercy. We're going to take care of them. This kid right here, they're not getting a fair shot in life. When, when other kids in their class have have had thousands upon thousands of more words read to them by the time they get to first grade. And this kid doesn't. We've got to help this kid. That's mercy. But then when we realize that this story is repeated over and over and over and over and over again, and that's not right. It's not right that there are some kids that get a shot at life and other kids that don't have that same shot. That's justice. That's when you go upstream to see what's going on and do something about it. So then let's look at these words through the lens of justice and mercy. These are the words of Luke 1, 51. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts. Let's keep reading. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty. There's justice and mercy in this. It's not just, it's not only that God's helping some individuals who, who have, have some struggles and having mercy on them. It's that God is looking at the power structures in place in our world where some are rich and powerful and use their power to trample others. They're up on their high horses, trampling others and saying, this is just the way it is. And what, what does the scripture say is, is the root of their trampling? Pride. Mary's song says, they are proud in their thoughts and pride leads to abuse and injustice. Pride says, well, I'm up on my high horse receiving the benefits that I have because I am better and I do deserve more. Pride dehumanizes others, saying they deserve to have less. Or it's their fault. Or it's not my problem. Or it's not my fault. Why would you blame me just because I get to be on the high horse? It's not my fault they weren't on a high horse too. Pride accepts privilege, the ability to function in this world in ways that others don't get to. That's just the way that things are. And in, in the transliteration that 
Sydney read for us. The scripture says in Mary's song that God knocks the tyrants from the high horses and pulls their victims up out of the mud. There's justice at work there. There's mercy at work there. And it's not surprising that someone in Mary's situation would pay attention to this part of what God is doing. Whereas people in privilege miss the way that God at Christmas is not just giving us a generic hope, joy, peace, but actually a world-changing kind of hope that God is going to bring about justice to those who are trampled. There's one final word in this song I don't want us to miss. Luke 1:51 says, according to the promises that God's made, because our God keeps his promises. Our God keeps God's promises. And I look around at this world 2,000 years after Jesus' birth, and I say, God, I'm reading right here in this song that in the birth of Jesus, you are showing the strength of your arm. You're knocking the tyrants off their high horses. You're pulling the victims up out of the mud. You're changing the way of this world. And then I still look at this world 2,000 years later and say, you're obviously not done yet. Because <laughs> there are still victims. They're still tyrants. And Mary concludes her song saying, God keeps his promises. God's promises will be kept. Why would Jesus have grown up and born into a world like that? We describe the world that Jesus was born into. Why would he have been grown up like that? Why would he have been born into injustice? He could have been born into power and privilege. There were people with power and privilege in Jesus' time. He wasn't. Why? Jesus is God with us. And when God wants to deal with injustice, God is not content to be an outsider looking in. God refuses to look at injustice from the outside and then jump in as the rescuer who, face, who faces no hardship in that rescue. In Jesus, our God knows what it is like to suffer. God knows what it's like to face injustice. God stands in opposition to injustice as an insider to it, who personally felt it, and who's working from the inside in opposition to it. The question is, are we too following in the steps of Jesus, imitating God by choosing to be an insider to injustice? from the inside to work in opposition to it, even if it means we're doing so in ways that sacrifice our privilege. Our vows, when we say, yes, I'm going to become a member of this church, I'm going to receive baptism, 
I'm going to be a United Methodist. The vows that we take is this. We say, we ask, we ask the question, do you accept the freedom and the power that God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? That's a question that's asked of each person when they become a member of the United Methodist Church, if they become a member of grace. And there's no middle ground here. There's no saying, well, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not adding to oppression. I'm going to try and be a pretty good person. No, that's not it. Do you accept the freedom and the power God gives you to be like Jesus? Jesus had privilege. Jesus in heaven. Jesus as the eternal second person of the triune God sets aside privilege and steps onto this earth and walks among us and faces injustice, identifies, Jesus identifies himself with people who are suffering. Do you and I follow in the steps of Jesus? Do we accept the freedom and power God gives us to resist evil? When we see evil happening. Resist injustice. When we see injustice happening. Resist oppression. When we see oppression happening. And also to put ourselves in places where we will see it. Like Jesus. And to do that in whatever forms they present themselves. There's no middle ground here for me. I know what I'm called to do. I don't always know the details. I'm still learning. I'm reading. I'm listening to people tell me their stories. I'm seeking to understand how is there injustice in this world? And what's my place in resisting it? How do I join God in this? For you, if you've been wronged by our culture where injustice is so common, God knows you. God knows your pain. God is your defender. And I'm not saying that the injustices that have been inflicted on you will be made right in this right life because I don't know that. But here's why I do know. I do know that God is more grieved by the injustice that has been done to you than you can imagine. I know God cares. I know God sees your pain. And for all of us, we're called to ask, which side are we living on? Are we living in opposition to God or in opposition to injustice in the world? There's a phrase that was used this summer. It's not enough just to not be racist. We have to be anti-racist. Are we living in opposition to injustice in this world, or are we living in opposition to God? It's one or the other. And it's not a once-for-all-time kind of question that I can say right here, oh, good, I'm choosing to live in opposition to injustice and on God's side. This is an everyday question that I get to ask myself. Whose side am I on?
I ask, I invite you to do the same. Thank you for listening. If you found today's podcast meaningful, we invite you to subscribe to all of the podcasts from Grace Atumwa. Grace is a congregation of the United Methodist Church located in Otumwa, Iowa. For more information on this podcast or other information on the ministries of Grace Atumwa, you can find us on the web at www.graceotumwa, spelled O-T-T-U-M-W-A, dot org. Thank you for listening.